0: This is the Nordic Asia podcast.
1: Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, co-hosted by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku. Now when the summer holidays are over, we are again back with new episodes. The previous episodes of the COVID-19 podcast series dealt with India and Japan, and with this episode we will return to China. While China has managed to get the coronavirus effectively under control, questions still remain about the first weeks of the outbreak of the pandemic. Namely, after the SARS crisis in 2003, China established a contagious disease national direct reporting system to evade political interference in the infectious disease reporting system. The system has worked quite well until a new type of infection emerged in Wuhan. Why did the system fail in Wuhan? In this episode, Herman Obier from the Center for East Asian Studies of the University of Turku talks about information control strategies used in China during the first weeks of 2020, and I am Outluova from the same center. While China is today one of the most digitalized countries in the world, for example with regard to the number of internet users and the application of digital systems in health services, the Communist Party of China has also invested heavily in the development of various censorship and propaganda techniques in order to tighten control over the information flow. The Chinese system of censorship and propaganda are in the focus of Herman Obieh's current research project that is funded by the Academy of Finland. Welcome, Herman.
0: Thank you, Oti, for having me.
1: Why is it important to take seriously the increasingly effective information control regime of the Communist Party of China, not just within China, but outside China too?
0: Right. I think before COVID-19, the censorship and propaganda of the Chinese Communist Party was mostly seen in the West as a domestic problem because its impact was most visible through the arrest, for example, of dissidents and civil society activists. But nowadays, with COVID-19, we can see that in the early days of the COVID-19 outbreak, The use by the different levels of the party system of information control, either in the shape of censorship or propaganda, has been amplified massively and it had obviously consequences that went way beyond the borders of China. And the other reason why I think we should take it really seriously is because these days uh, the censorship and the propaganda of the Chinese government are also much more powerful than ever before thanks to the technological advances that the party has been able to leverage in order to amplify its ability to control the message around the kinds of narratives that are politically sensitive for Beijing. And, of course, COVID-19 is one of these narratives.
1: Okay. Before going further into the discussion of these control regimes, so uh, could you please provide some basic information about the digital ecosystem in China right now?
0: Right. I think it's important indeed for our listeners to have a good picture of the digital landscape in China in order to understand who are the key actors today in China when it comes to uh, information control. So first of all, if we use uh, Western equivalents as a, as a proxy to understand who are the, the main actors in China, if you compare Google, for example, or Facebook or Amazon with the Chinese equivalents of Baidu as a search engine, and WeChat or Weibo as the equivalent of Facebook as a social media networks,
1: yeah, and, and I mean, mm. if Google and, and Facebook, you yeah. can't use them in, in China without VPN. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So and that's why they have this uh, own yes, e- ecosystem. Yes, they're
0: often yeah referred in the Western media as copycats uh, of, of the American equivalent. But actually, they are increasingly powerful as well, not just within China, but uh, globally. And of course, Chinese people who can afford buying a VPN, which is a kind of a tool to jump what is known as the Great Firewall, which is the, basically the metaphor used to, to describe the control of the Internet by the Chinese government. Then you could argue that uh, some people in China can still access some information by going through this information control system. But actually, it's increasingly difficult in China to not only access the VPN, but to also find one that works and that is affordable. So actually, it's been estimated by a few studies that there's a tiny minority can still use VPN to jump the Great Firewall. But by far, most people in China now have no choice but to use those uh, Chinese equivalents of uh, WeChat, Weipo. and and the other platforms. So this is uh, important to mention here because I think the main way for the party in China to implement the censorship and propaganda is through these intermediary platforms that are half private companies, half basically doing the job of the party in order to operate and also to protect itself from the American competitors. And that is why it's increasingly politicized these days, I think.
1: Yeah, the Chinese domestic digital ecosystem is really vibrant and expanding, but what kind of patterns and trends can you identify in the Communist Party's information control?
0: Right. In our research here at the Center for East Asian Studies with uh, Professor Lauri Paltema, we've looked into a unique dataset that comes from uh, secret directives that have been issued by different levels of the propaganda department in China that are used to uh, complement the laws and regulations that are issued by the party to, to govern the information ecosystem. And we discovered through those secret directives that are, by the way, publicly accessible on the China Digital Times uh, website, we actually identified three trends in the way they control uh, information. So the most common one consists in a complete ban of uh, information that is deemed sensitive by the party. And this is aimed at both traditional and online media. And of course, uh, a growing number of Chinese people now are gathering news from online media. So the digital platforms are really the key targets here from these directives because obviously the virality of information sharing on digital platforms is such that time is of the essence for the propaganda department to control the way information spreads within China. And the second trend we observed is a, a partial ban coupled with instructions to spin story that is centrally approved according to uh, official sources, often uh, linked to the Xinhua News Agency. And the idea here is that when a story is already out and it's too late to completely uh, censor it, they try to reduce its visibility. And this is made largely possible by the the new technological capacities uh, that that comes from those digital platforms, which is, you know, how they can use their algorithms basically to demote certain stories and promote uh, the ones that are centrally approved. And finally, the third trend we identified is about uh, promoting what Xi Jinping called the positive energy stories. And this is about basically flooding the media sphere with stories that are positively framing the party as an efficient, competent power, who is a force for good, basically. And this, this is clearly there as a way of supporting the also the policies and the laws that are issued by the party.
1: Yes and these kind of positive energy stories we can also read in Europe and elsewhere I mean outside of China so this is not only a domestic policy but a global strategy.
0: That's right it increasingly has global ramifications because obviously mm. The party has been very keen as China is integrating deeper and deeper into the global economy. It tries to basically influence or shape some of the stories that relate to China and that obviously tries to to put the Chinese government under a positive light.
1: Yeah, I mean, many governments are doing this, not only China. Sure, it's not
0: unique to China, (laughs) not at all. It's just, of Mm -hmm. course, the level of uh, coordination and and, and, uh, the fact that it's still a very much centralized system of uh, uh, information control means that they can use a variety of medium and platforms including Western platforms and Western media by buying a space within those newspapers for example, in order to promote the the centrally approved version of the story. And in that sense, even though I think Western governments do still uh, provide funding for for example, media platforms like Radio Free Asia in America or Voice of America, uh, these are legacies of the Cold War really, but we don't have anything equivalent in democracies. And in that sense the, the ability to amplify the CCP message around the world is unrivaled, I think.
1: Then if you move from uh, online control to the control of uh, uh, these uh, governance systems and what kind of information is passed through those. So if we look at the digitalization of the health governance after SARS in 2005, and why did it fail now?
0: Right. I think uh, there's been a couple of lessons that have been learned after SARS, yeah, started to emerge in the early 2000s. And, and there's been also an effort to institutionalize a more effective response mechanism in the shape of the CDC, which is the, 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 the uh, disease control uh, system in China, which was modeled after uh, its equivalent in the US. And they invested quite a lot of money in building up this capacity to you know, intervene early on, whenever an infectious disease might emerge. And to be fair, it has been very useful over the last 15 years or so. It, it has allowed quite a few local officials to trigger the alarm call and respond faster than in the past. And scientists as well in China have become increasingly able to detect some of the viruses and, and bacteria that were spreading and, and that could potentially turn into a, a dangerous outbreak. And we have seen, for example, in the case of COVID-19, Chinese scientists working very effectively to identify the sequence of the genome. And they even uploaded that information earlier on than the, the National Health Commission and the, and the CDC. So in that sense, we can't blame the, the scientists in China for not doing their job, uh, quite the opposite. But I think clearly what happened here in the case of this uh, institutional reporting system is that Wuhan officials together with the, the provincial officials in Wuhan, actually tried to put politics ahead of science and they deliberately tried to cover up the sensitive information that emerged from the work of frontline medical workers in Wuhan hospitals and from labs and, and scientists. Yeah,
1: but what were the reasons? I mean, still in November there was uh, cases found of punamic plague in uh, inner Mongolia and that was reported swiftly. So, so what what were the specific circumstances in Wuhan that maybe triggered this
0: yeah, that's a good question. Actually, it's a bit tricky to, to compare the different outbreaks in China in, in, a, in a meaningful way without being familiar, I think, with the, the science of each type of bacteria and, and virus. In the case of this plague that emerged last November in Inner Mongolia, it was actually bacterial plague, a bubonic plague. And in that mm-hmm. sense, it was not viral like COVID-19. And It also happened in a very sparsely populated area. So once it was spotted by the local hospital, they could easily contain it. So it was not seen, I think, by local officials as something that could dangerously spread in a big city like Wuhan, uh, where actually, I think the alarm call should have been uh, much louder from the start, obviously. So one as a possible explanation why Wuhan party officials tried to cover up uh, the outbreak of COVID-19 uh, might be related to the ambition of those officials that has been reported in the media for getting the recognition from the central government in Beijing to uh, get the status of an, of an autonomous city like Chongqing or Shanghai, which will give it a seat in, uh, in the top-level political bureau. And, of course, the other important factor that may explain the cover-up during the first half of January 2020 is the occurrence of the two assemblies, uh, provincial two assemblies uh, called Lianghui in Chinese, which yeah, is yeah the
1: important political meetings, meetings which yeah. is a,
0: a, a ritual that has not been disturbed for a few decades, I think since Mao's era, if I remember correctly. And that is why I think yeah, they try to keep the appearance of stability until these two assemblies complete their schedule.
1: What were then the prominent cases of information control during the, in the beginning of this pandemic?
0: Right. There are actually a few cases that happened during the COVID-19 in Wuhan that are quite revealing in terms of the dynamics of information control. Uh, the first most prominent case that has attracted a lot of attention both within and outside China is the case of uh, Dr. Li Wenliang, Dr. Li was uh, a eye specialist in one of the Wuhan hospital, and he was made aware of the spread of uh, COVID-19 in late December after another colleague of his in another hospital in Wuhan called Dr. Ai, ai was informed of the results of a sample that was tested in a lab in Shanghai, I think. And when the result came out, it said that the structure of that virus was very similar to the SARS virus. In other words, it rang alarm bells among these doctors because they still remembered how it was transmittable from human to human and they didn't know uh, how uh, fast, uh, how viral it was at that time. But the fact that its structure was so close to the SARS could potentially mean that it was already spreading and and therefore something had to be done. So actually several doctors at that time in Wuhan hospitals tried to inform their superiors, the, the party officials basically uh, were in control in their respective hospitals. And basically the party officials reacted by sharing that information with the local health commission, which is under the control of the local party officials. And at that time, we could argue that people who were responsible and in charge of relaying that information should have already uploaded this critical information into the, the national reporting system of the CDC. And this is what precisely didn't happen. And so Dr. Lee, when he opened his WeChat group uh, that he shared with his fellow alumni from the medical school, he made it clear that this was very scary and that they should take care of themselves and get prepared, basically. So he did his job in that sense. But immediately, uh, almost after reposting this WeChat post from uh, Dr. I, he was invited by the local police officers to sign a letter of reprimand to promise not to spread such false rumors. And this is a typical pattern of pressure at the local level when it comes to sensitive information of that kind that could potentially affect the careers or, or the, the political stability of the city or the, the province. Then uh, using the framing of uh, rumor or picking quarrel or disturbing social order are, are typical tools of the party officials to try to silence, basically, in this case, doctors from doing their jobs and spreading vital information. So there there are these contradictions within the political system that, in a way, allow those who have the power to control the information in such a way that the key actors, in that case the hospital doctors and the public, can't actually access the, the vital information in a timely manner and therefore can't get prepared.
1: Even some researchers in, in Chinese universities have openly said this, that the failures in the first weeks to spread information about this made it really hard to, to then control the epidemic later. So some people in, in, within China also are openly stating this.
0: Yes, that's right. I think there's a fairly good understanding within that sector that something didn't work in the early stage. And in many ways, all the celebratory and positive energy narratives that started to dominate the public sphere afterwards are all the louder because these early stages were not dealt with properly and I think it's in the interests nowadays of the party to try to erase the memory of that particular early stage. And and that is why I think so many people uh, outside China uh, still want to know what happened and hope that this international inquiry led by the WHO could uncover some of the information that has been basically kept secret uh, until now. And unfortunately, for the moment, it doesn't look like this inquiry will be able to collect such information.
1: Yeah, that's something we should certainly follow how this inquiry is is proceeding. Now we are in uh, early September, and if we consider the situation in the United States and the fundamental failure of the Trump administration to control the pandemic. So it seems that the Communist Party of China has been able to influence the global narrative of the fight against COVID-19 to its Advantage. So it's using these uh, positive energy stories here and also other tactics.
0: Yes, indeed. We have seen how the Chinese Communist Party has been able to leverage, for example, the power of social media platforms in the West. I'm thinking here of Facebook, YouTube and Twitter mainly. And we have seen also how the automated counts and, and posting that the party has has been able to to use in the way that Russia did, for example, in 2016 for the US elections, has allowed the party to amplify its message outside China to a level that has been, I think, historically unprecedented. And at the same time, we have seen this narrative experiencing some significant backlash, especially in Europe. I think Europe uh, has been seen as a kind of, battlefield for public opinion uh, between America and China. And there's been lots of efforts deployed by the Chinese Communist Party through its so-called mask diplomacy and state aid in order to influence the way the party will be perceived and, and, and China more generally. But at the same time, we do see persistent voices questioning and challenging the centrally approved narrative around COVID 19. And they do ask repeatedly what happened during the early stages. And it's obviously very critical to discover the truth in this respect. But unfortunately, uh, at the moment, the very systemic reasons why the CCP has been able to to shape the narrative in such a way are actually the root of the problem, I would argue, because clearly, if another epidemic was to emerge in China in the future, the fact that the party is so firmly controlling the information ecosystem means that it's very unlikely that scientists and hospitals and the public will be able to do their job to trigger the alarm call early enough to prevent such tragic epidemic from happening again. So I think we need to be very firm in basically expressing our opposition against this kind of information control regime, especially with the implication it has in a digital uh, age and basically keep asking for the facts and the truths about COVID-19.
1: Thank you, Herman, for joining this podcast, and let's hope that we will someday get an uncensored account of the events. When I started this COVID-19 series in May, I thought that this series will end in the autumn, but it seems that it takes still months before the virus is under control. So welcome to our upcoming episodes on the complex consequences of the pandemic in Asia. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia Podcast.